year has passed since we first launched this podcast. Sworn statement began by featuring the case of a deceased hiker known only by his trail name, Mostly Harmless. This summer will mark two years since the man's body was found at Noble's Campground in Big Cypress National Preserve, within the Florida Everglades. The man appears to have died of natural causes, but detectives at the Collier County Sheriff's Office have not been able to identify him. What's strange about the case is that dozens of thru-hikers met the man on the Appalachian Trail and the Florida Trail while hiking in 2017 and 2018. They spent hours chatting with him, took photos of him, even gave him advice on how to hike a long-distance trail. But no one learned the man's real name. Since July 2018, detectives have received dozens of tips about the man's identity. We outlined our investigation during the first three episodes of this podcast released in 2019. Now, in an effort to reinvigorate public interest in the case, we're releasing copies of the two notebooks detectives found among the hikers' belongings. This episode will provide a quick update on the current status of the case and a closer look at what we found inside those notebooks. Right now, we cannot narrow our focus in any direction. We're basically looking 360 degrees in every direction with every possibility that we have to keep open because we cannot narrow the field at all. You are listening to Sworn Statement, a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office exploring local cases and public safety issues all unfolding right here in Southwest Florida. I'm your host, Christine Gill. Detective David Herm works in our homicide division. Even though we don't believe that there was anything suspicious about the way that Mostly Harmless died, our homicide division investigates all unattended deaths. Detective Herm assumed the case about a year ago as the previous lead detective was preparing to retire from the agency. Initially received a lot of tips from hikers, people who were familiar with the Appalachian Trail, who had been there, who may have had contact with him or were giving us suggestions about where to look, who to contact, uh, as far as places that he may have stayed or places that he may have physically been at at one time. Those type tips have since slowed to a trickle. Now, Detective Herm says, many of those tips are from internet sleuths who sometimes pass along photos of individuals that they think might bear a passing resemblance to the hiker. Uh, and these tips are well-intentioned, but a lot of times there's no credible information at all that they're providing. Uh, for instance, we, we have a lot of people giving us random photographs, many times with no name or information on that person, and saying, I think this looks a lot like him, could it be him? We do have some people who I think missing people are kind of a hobby for them, and they go through all the missing person sites and, and they're more familiar with the nomenclature and the procedures, and they're able to actually come to us and say, hey, this person went missing about the same time, uh, they're listed, here's the information, is there any way we can verify if this might be the person? And 
those tips we can go forward with because we have a name of the individual potential match. Uh, many times if they're properly listed, we have uh, identifying marks or DNA, dental records, fingerprints that we can go through and scientifically identify our victim with. Uh, if we don't have those as a minimum, we're just looking at pictures oftentimes that are 15 or 20 years old, different weight, hairstyles, different periods in people's lives and trying to say, well, it might look like him, but there's no way to scientifically make a match. I should point out here that our detectives have access to a few local and national databases, which they comb on a regular basis for missing persons who might match the hiker's biometrics, meaning his height, weight, hair color, and eye color, and his age range. Possible matches are easily ruled out when compared to the hiker's fingerprints and dental records. Other law enforcement agencies have access to this information through those databases. You can learn more about how the databases work in the first season of this podcast. Detective Herm does not believe that it's going to be one of these tips that solves the case. It's either going to be somebody who has personal knowledge of my victim, either as a friend, a co-worker, or a family member, or somebody who knows somebody who is a friend, a family member, or a co-worker, to give us a definite direction to look at. Uh, right now, we cannot narrow our focus in any direction. Uh, we're basically looking 360 degrees in every direction with every possibility that we have to keep open because we cannot narrow the field at all. And it started to appear to us that my victim actively and intentionally is trying to remain anonymous, unknown, off the grid. Um, he has no electronic footprint. We can't tie any financial institutions to him. There's no phone records, anything. If you wanted to follow a guideline on how to not be identified, do exactly as our hiker has done because he's done a great job of of thwarting our efforts to find out who he is and get him back to his loved ones. In the first three episodes, we talked about the belongings Mostly Harmless carried with him. Investigators went to great lengths to find out where he purchased his equipment in an effort to find credit card information or an ID. We also told you at the time about the notebooks that we found at his campsite near his body. This year, our investigators decided to release images of those notebooks so that you can take a look as well. We're hoping that someone who reads and understands the coding language within them might be familiar with the type of project that Mostly Harmless was working on. Was he working in this field? Was he active on a project that did something along these lines? Was he educated somewhere that taught him all of this? Uh, does any of this code or his formulas look familiar to somebody that they can say, wow, that, that might be... X, Y, or Z company or this person that were working on a project like that. We have a link on our website and Facebook page to a PDF of the notebooks. We also uploaded some photo images of the pages for a closer look. You'll notice that Mostly Harmless had neat handwriting and good spelling, and that he printed his letters instead of using cursive. One of the notebooks, a standard ruled with pages the size of regular computer paper, is filled to the margins with his notes. And the smaller notebook, the kind you might stick in your back pocket, 
has the smallest of letters, still legible, across each line and in margins in some spots. Maybe you'll recognize the handwriting, but we're mostly focused on whether you know someone who was working on the kind of video game he played. Or maybe you know someone who was programming blockchain, the same type of code used for Bitcoin transactions. A few pages included that kind of language as well. Or maybe you'll recognize the page or two where Mostly Harmless outlined his plans for the perfect protein bar. It's on those pages where he lists flavors for square wafers and their macronutrients. The extra protein bar would have 15 grams of protein, 13 grams of carbs, and 1.5 grams of fat. Other recipes included caffeine and high fiber counts. Ring a bell? Take a look and reach out to our investigators if you think you have a tip. When detectives decided to release images of the notebook that Mostly Harmless carried, I sent them to a professor at MIT. He took a look and was able to quickly identify the code as belonging to an online game called Screeps. Screeps, it turns out, is a type of online game that web developers, gamers, and computer programmers play as a sort of fun way to hone their coding skills. Most users have at least a basic understanding of JavaScript before they start. Once I learned that this was Screeps code, I got in touch with Screeps players through their Slack channel. The players who offered to look at the code quickly pointed out that Mostly Harmless was a high-level player. He was experienced not just in the game, but also in JavaScript. I spoke with one Screeps player named Shane Madden. He told me a little bit more about the game and the way that Mostly Harmless might have played it. It's a combination of a massively multiplayer game where you're interacting with all the other people in the game world. Uh, in a real-time strategy game like StarCraft, where you would have, uh, you're managing a base and building units and competing for, uh, for a goal, usually to, to beat the other players. Uh, in this case, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive shared game world where all of, all of everyone's uh, bases are in the same world, in, in the StarCraft analogy, uh, and all of the code is running 24-7. So a, a human couldn't play this game because you have to be literally at the keyboard all day, every day, to be able to keep your keep your economy running and to keep your units alive. Um, so it's a it's a very unique game in that you don't play by playing the game directly. You play by writing the code that manages your your virtual player in the game world. Shane works in the tech industry, troubleshooting and coding by day. For a lot of folks, coming home from work to do more of what you do on the clock doesn't sound very fun. But for Scrapes players, that's exactly what it is. A fun way to use their professional skills in a world without rules or deadlines. It's a fun way to, to kind of use some of the skills at work in a, from work in a low-pressure environment. And that's also you know, more, of, you know, more, of, more of a game environment, but some, something where you can have a little more freedom. And it's, and it's something that they can engage with on their own terms. So we're, at work, you're working in a code base where... You know, you, you might not be happy with the way it's designed. You might you have usually uh, in, in a team with programmers, you usually have multiple people on the team and, you know, certain certain standards specifically attractive to um, to software developers. And I'd say uh, specifically web developers is an interesting kind of uh, connection there. So the, the language that the game uses, uh, which is called JavaScript, is actually the same uh, code language that's used uh, when you're 
uh, when you're using uh, browsing websites and looking at websites, the, one of the code languages that they're using um, that, that websites use to display uh, what you see when you're, uh, when you're using a web browser is JavaScript. So uh, one of the things that, that's uh, a, a potential, I guess, a potential point of, of interest is that he seemed to be a, a fairly high-level JavaScript developer. Now, those, those skills could have come from the game, uh, or they could have come from his professional life. Shane said that it's likely Mostly Harmless worked as a web developer, or at least coded websites as a serious hobby. The game has a bit of a learning curve, even for professionals, and Mostly Harmless was writing his code by hand, with few errors or revisions. He used a specific shorthand that's common in the Screech Slack community, but that he wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to uh, in other places. Um, and then just his, his use of... Um, the, the code itself, so the sections where it's actually a full code, uh, his, his use of those, those interfaces, those levers for, for changing stuff in the game, was essentially kind of, it, it basically demonstrated like a complete understanding of, of the game mechanics that someone wouldn't have without uh, months and months of, of kind of playing the game and kind of trying to solve the problems. Shane believes that the code was definitely written while Mostly Harmless hiked, not before he left on his journey. That's because there are simple typos on some pages, and in other places, there are blanks. Shane said that those would have been simple fixes if Mostly Harmless had access to the internet, but we know he wasn't carrying a cell phone at the time. As someone who is familiar with the burnout common in the tech industry these days, Shane said he understands why a Screeps player might opt to unplug and go on a long hike. It's interesting because I see echoes of you know, echoes of what I, what I see in a lot of the tech industry. Um, it's, you know, one, one of the things that, you know, when I'm, when I'm frustrated with the, with the way things are going at work, one of the things I, I say uh, jokingly is, is, uh, is threatening to take up a career in agriculture um, and to basically just get, get out of the tech space because it's just, uh, it's tough to deal with sometimes. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, stress and pressure and toxicity and like we, you know, discuss that can be very disillusioning from a, you know, from the perspective of someone who, who cares a lot about privacy or cares a lot about, um, you know, some of the things that, that uh, they see kind of degrading in, in, our, in our overly connected world these days. Um, really ring true to me is like someone, someone from, from the tech world who's, um, who's burned out and who, who needs a break and, and needs to disconnect for a while. Um, it's totally understandable to, to kind of get to that breaking point and to, and to need to kind of reset and reconnect with, reconnect with the rest of the world and re- with nature. <laughs> and so, you know, a, a level, a, a, a simmering level of, of unsustainability um, and, to, and the feeling that, that something is, something's off balance. Seeing the way that the sausage is made in the tech industry, uh, it, it could be attractive to want to no longer be leaving any sort of digital breadcrumb trail for the advertising companies to follow. Uh, and that could have been part of the impetus for his hike. You know, his, his kind of leave no trace philosophy, um, it, it seemed to be, he seemed to be going out of his way in a lot of this to kind of avoid anything that would be personally identifying, um, avoid anything that would be kind of give him away, quote unquote. Um, he seemed to be very, you know, very much kind of, you know, the, we, that's what made me think, you know, kind of privacy, someone who was kind of privacy focused, uh, who had kind of gotten out of the tech industry because of their frustrations around that. Screep's developers said identifying users of their platform would violate their privacy policy, but our detectives are working to nail down any leads on this angle. In the meantime, I reached out to employees of Valve, 
a video game developer and digital distribution company based in Washington State. Valve owns another platform called Steam, which is where Screep's players purchase the game. As Shane explained, the logic is that if Mostly Harmless was a Screep's player, he likely purchased that game through Steam. And if he had a Steam account, it could be tied to a credit card with his real name. Like Screep's, Valve abides by a privacy policy and couldn't help with this podcast. But they did point out that users can also purchase games with Steam wallet cards or CD keys, which are sold online and in retail stores where buyers can use cash. So if Mostly Harmless was as secretive in his real life as he was out on the trail, there are ways he could have purchased an account without any link to his identity. Still, Shane is optimistic. He says that Screep's players have to log in through their Steam accounts to play the game. So it's possible there's a history of the account Mostly Harmless used, showing an active player whose account suddenly went dark around the time he began hiking. It's possible, too, that his code exists on the platform to this day, working to fend off attacks in his stead and faithfully executing the commands he coded before deciding to disconnect, trading the keyboard for pen and paper. The community affectionately calls them zombies. Um, but effectively, it's a, it's a player who's no longer managing their code base. There's no longer any change to how the, how the code is reacting to what's happening. So sometimes it, it'll be that the room upgrades past a certain level, and the code doesn't place the, the structures that it can take advantage of for the higher levels. Um, so that's one of the things that he was working on with this new version of the code, is so that when you, you got to a higher level, it would automatically figure out what it needed to do at that higher level and, and react and change, change how it was working. So a player who's no longer updating their code, how long that code continues running is basically just a, depends on the quality of, of the code. Um, so I, I feel like this is really, he had big plans. <laughs> he was excited to get back to the keyboard and to, and to commit some of these ideas uh, from paper into, into actual code and, li- and live code in the game world. Unfortunately, he has not left, uh, he, he's left no trace in terms of uh, being able to kind of track back to his, his user account on the, on the Scripps Live servers, unfortunately. But there is still definitely the outside chance that his previous version of his code is still, is still out, and, out there and running on the live servers. He, he, definitely, you know, he definitely has an account um, on Steam, if nothing else. So there, you know, as much as it is a needle in the haystack, there, there is a needle there. Hikers who met Mostly Harmless and followed his case still check in for news on his identity. Kelly Fairbanks is the trail angel who met Mostly Harmless a few months before he was found in Big Cypress. And she was the person who identified the composite sketch our agency released when we first came across his body in 2018. You'll remember Kelly from the first season of this podcast. Kelly still browses the internet forums looking for hints about his identity, trying to see whether anyone has provided new information about who Mostly Harmless was or how he died. Following all the Facebook threads and the news, anytime it gets shared, I read every comment just to see if there's any tips or, or anything that pops up. Because some people, I guess, don't want to come forward to the police or don't want to get involved or whatever. And they'll just put it out on Facebook and hope somebody pays attention to it. A lot of people are very 
uh, interested in this case. They absolutely want to see closure on it. Um, it's just something, a case that when you hear about it, it grabs a hold of you and you're just like, really? How does that happen in this day and age that nobody's come forward? That's just mind blowing to a lot of people. I mean, when you think about life, everybody's got somebody that does their hair, a dentist, a gr ex-girlfriend, or you know, just different little people that touch our lives every day and nobody's come forward. So it's kind of weird. Whether or not he is figured out, um, I know the hiking season just kicked off this month and uh, I've had several message me that they've went out to Nobles to pay their respects. So they still feel it. They're, they're worried, concerned, and want, want to see an end to this. One of the through hikers who met Mostly Harmless back in 2018 decided to pay his respects this year by returning to his final resting place at Nobles Campground. Joe King and his friend Aaron first met Mostly Harmless in January of 2018 in Ocala National Forest. And yeah, we crossed paths with him and we saw this very kind looking guy um, with piercingly beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen on a human being, period. And um, this huge pack. And, um, you know, it was just one of those typical, just sort of, you know, stop and chat for a second. Um, I don't even remember if we asked where he had hiked from, um, just asked who was through hiking. And we were just kind of marveling at the size of his pack, like he had everything, everything he owned in it, and, um, you know, just walked away. During his hike that year, Joe ended up catching a parasite, and the illness that followed forced him to prematurely end his hike in May of 2018. Soon after the case went public, folks on Facebook began to theorize that Mostly Harmless had set out on his hike after learning he had a terminal disease. Others suggested he might have been suicidal. That concept struck a chord with Joe, who had a rough upbringing and was subsequently diagnosed with PTSD later in life. Joe said he's always had a sort of fatalist attitude. Through hiking was something he found to combat those feelings. It just struck me like he was just walking however long he could walk until he collapsed. Um, and whether that's true or not, it just, um, it hit pretty hard because there are a number of us who went out there fully, partly with the intention, with it in mind that we might just sit down somewhere and die. You know, it was uh, <laughs> walk and find healing or die trying. And, you know, fortunately, everyone that I've met that I'm aware of who went out there like that, um, they, they found, they found something that, that, that you know, that, that sustainably kept them alive. I, I grew up with an unconscious belief that I was going to die by the age of 40, um, probably by suicide. And um, I no longer believe that. Joe recovered from the parasite then made plans to finish the 330-mile portion of the Florida Trail he still had left, beginning in January 2020. He and his friend Aaron, along with a few other hikers, made it a point to visit Noble's campground early this year. Joe had passed through the site during his 2018 hike, well before Mostly Harmless was found dead. And even before his death, Joe said something about Noble's campground made him feel uneasy. His buddy Aaron had also passed through on a solo hike, and reported feeling the same way. We had each had this really creepy feeling about the place. 
and didn't even want to stop for water. So knowing that we were going to pass right by it, we talked about, you know, maybe doing something. Um, I set an intention to just do whatever felt right in the moment. When Joe and Aaron returned to Noble's campground, the uneasy feeling still hung in the air. That's part of the reason Joe said he felt compelled to somehow put mostly harmless at ease. I uh, learned a little sage. Um, they were selling it at Billy Swamp. I didn't start the hike with it, so I, I grabbed a little stick. And, you know, I personally feel like there's bad juju at that camp that existed before mostly harmless was found there. Um, I know other people don't experience it that way, so I'm not trying to sell it for anyone else. Um, uh, it's just my my feeling, and they, they don't claim that it's true. It's not objective truth. You know, I, I don't know whether we exist after this life or not. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty agnostic about most everything. But uh, what I did was I sort of directed my intention while sort of, you know, burning, burning, burning the sage and asked whatever bad stuff may be there to stay there and not go anywhere else <laughs> under the logic that, you know, it's got to go somewhere and just said, mostly harmless, if you're here and you don't want to be in it, sorry. <sighs> I did not realize that I would get choked up talking about this. Um, I said, um, mostly harmless, if you're here, if any party was here, and you don't want to be here anymore, um, you're invited to walk out with us. We're now going on two years since Mostly Harmless was found in his tent. Since then, tips from the public have continued to trickle in. An interest in the case remains strong in online forums and in the hearts and minds of folks like Joe King and Kelly Fairbanks. We hope that once you've finished listening, you'll take a look at the pages of The Notebook online. And if you think you know who wrote that code, give us a shout. Sworn Statement is a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rambosk. It is produced, written, and recorded by me, your host, Christine Gill.